Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. We began with the former premier of British Columbia, Ujjal Dosange, talking about the increasing level of public anger in this country. Then we got to Don Cherry. I played back, and you'll hear it, some of the questions and answers from my interview with Don Cherry. And we listened back to Ron McLean from what used to be Coach's Corner. We took some phone calls. From Quebec, Nino Colavecchio, Quebec sovereignist, former Parti Québécois candidate on the equalization payments issue. And from the Royal Bank, or what used to be the Royal Bank, now RBC, Senior Vice President John Stackhouse on their report on innovation coming into the medical system, automation and innovation. And Michael Zweigstra, teacher and author on teaching Canada's history in our schools. Some of what you'll hear on the podcast today. I want to get into this issue of um, just just the rapid rise to anger, the frustration, uh, people just feeling just out of the gate, ready to do battle. Ujal Dosange is a former premier of British Columbia, former member of parliament, liberal member of parliament, former federal cabinet minister, and I have always valued the opportunity to speak with the premier Dosange. We've disagreed on political issues in the past, but that was then. This is now. Uh, Premier, thank you so much for taking the time. I really value your opinion, your counsel. Just the way you, you look at the world, it, 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 it makes me feel like there's some sensibility where otherwise I can't find it in myself at times. So good to be with you, um, Roy. Um, I heard what you just said, and and it seems to me that, that like other countries in the world, are national discourse on many issues, including politics, culture, and other things, uh, has deteriorated to the point where it seems that that we are speaking not to each other as Canadians, but in many cases speaking as if we're speaking to the enemy. And, and you know, we, as you said, we we tend to forget that no two people are alike, and therefore, um, when we, whoever we disagree with, we begin to dehumanize them um, because um, because we forget, even if the person has made a mistake, the person is human. I mean, we're all human beings, and to err is human. Even to make mistakes is human, and I think that that's the the ability to understand. And forgive even a little bit is disappearing from our midst, um, and it, it worries me that 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 we are devoid of any empathy towards each other if we disagree on anything, generally speaking. And we, what we've done, I've I've been watching this too, and what we've 
seem to have done, you know, the, the idea of deterrent, which was uh, reduced from vengeance to deterrence in the criminal punishment, criminal um, code of Canada, that we've somehow imported that into our, into our cultural, social, and political dialogue. Mm-hmm. Uh, even, you know, even in, in the criminal process in Canada, we don't do capital punishment anymore, which is wonderful as far as I'm concerned. But in the area of culture, things like racism, identity politics, and all of those things, we strip the wrongdoer, as a, of what we consider is the wrongdoer, we strip the wrongdoer of everything that that person is or has built up. And we take away their life's work in a moment. Um, we rush to judgment. We want to finish them. If the idea is to finish each and every one that has any fault in the country, we wouldn't have a country. The idea ought to be that even if we disagree, we have a dialogue and we try and change each other so that we can all be better. Uh, But that's not what we're doing. And, you know, even President Obama said recently that, that, that there's this cancel culture in universities. Talks are being canceled because... People disagree with the speaker's views, um, and and that we are too judgmental. We're quick to judge, um, and and we um, other the other person. We we believe the other person is absolutely different from us, is an enemy that we disagree with. And it it dawned upon me, like I'm not perfect. I've made my share of mistakes in my life. That if we're looking for perfect human beings regardless of what your point of view is, uh, you know, we're looking for saints. But there'd be no Canada if we're just looking for saints. None of us is a saint. We're all human beings. We all make mistakes. And we have to begin to learn, once again, relearn the idea of forgiveness, which is, in fact, in many cultures and faiths. The, the idea of forgiveness is paramount. In fact, you know, forgiveness brings you comfort. Forgiveness brings the forgiver comfort, perhaps, more than the forgiven. And that's something we're forgive- we're forgetting all the time, and it, it worries me, even in Don's case. You know, I, I haven't watched Don. Obviously, I'm aware of him. Uh, he's very popular. He says outlandish things uh, quite often. But there's no need to murder a man's character and his life's work you can disagree with him you can have a dialogue with him invite him to a conversation no the first thing we says you apologize it is like hanging without a trial um and I, and that that worries me and and premier i have to take a break in a second and we'll continue but it just seems to me that this phenomenon is gaining speed. It's gaining dimension. It's it's becoming more and more of an issue. Uh, my listeners know, because I've been very open about it, that Don Cherry and I have been friends for a long time. I interviewed him on Friday. We played the interview yesterday. 90% of the response that I got was very positive about the interview. 10% was, you blew it. You're useless. You didn't ask him the toughest questions you should have asked him. You shouldn't be on the radio. 
right? There you are. There, there you are. I mean, I, so, so I looked at it and I thought I, have a, I had a reason for asking the questions I asked and the way I asked them. Take from it what you will and then, and then do with it as you will. This is what we do. We, we, we present a program. We present ideas. We present what we present. And then hopefully it connects with many people. Other people, it'll connect differently. But, you know, it's I look at the I look at the uh, the emails and some of the some of them are, are absolutely extreme. And I thought I, I say to myself, what brought that on? How did we get from listening to an interview? And they're, they're so extreme, some of them, Premier, that I can't read them on the air. Well, you know, the, the moment we we forget how to converse with each other um, uh, civilly um, with um, uh, with a lot of room for disagreement, um, that's the moment when we begin to slide towards anger and, in the end, perhaps, violence. And that is not a, that is not a very good thought. No. But the fact is that if we don't, don't listen to each other with respect, even if we disagree, uh, and we, when we don't try to change, it, change each other with respect, violence will be the ultimate answer. Yeah, please hold on. We're going to come back with former British Columbia Premier Ujjal Dessange, and we'll talk about the convulsions. This is, what, this is what it feels like to me, that we're undergoing these national convulsions. And sure, there are challenging situations. And sure, we express strong views. We're, we should be doing that. We should be getting involved, getting engaged. But when the strong views cross over into unrestrained fury, that's not good. That is not good. Why are we doing this? The equalization issue. That has people up in arms. And yeah, I get it. I understand. We've talked about it a lot on the air. We, 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 we talk about the frustrations that, 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 that are being faced. And they grow because there seems to be a lack of solutions or a lack of willingness to work together by people whom we hire to do exactly that, pragmatically manage the affairs of the nation. And that just adds again to this feeling, these convulsions of, of anger and frustration that are in our in our country. And that's what I'm speaking with the former Premier of British Columbia, Ojal Dossange, about. And, and Premier, I don't know that I'm even expressing this uh, properly. It's You're doing a far better job than, than I possibly could. Um, so if I can just go back to the Don Cherry issue here. So we're undergoing another in this series of national emotional convulsions. We experienced it during the election campaign. Um, and, and here we are with Don Cherry. Who knows what's next? Maybe it's the equalization issue. What's the teaching moment that we can take away realistically from this, given the, the mindset that, that seems to just be so instantly um, emotionally present in Canada? Well, it seems to me that, that, that we've become, as I said, devoid of empathy uh, for each other whether it's interprovincially, whether it's otherwise, um, wh what you played from um, the leader of Bloc Québécois and Premier Kenny just exemplifies um, what the problem is. Um, it's, it's insensitive comments 
like the leader of the Bloc Quebecois, and and then anger, somewhat somewhat legitimate anger, uh, from the Premier of Alberta, um, and it is it is that we are inconsiderate um, of each other, whether across the provinces or each you know or vis-a-vis each other. Um, and it is not just a problem of the states and the provinces and the country. It's sometimes the problem with an identity politics that sort of gone crazy in this country and other countries. And so it, the, this this lack of consideration and empathy for each other um, permeates um, through our culture, through our system, and there's no one solution to it. We just have to begin to examine um, ourselves, each one of us, no matter what position we hold, important or not so important, in the country, in the provinces, in the cities, in neighborhoods. And we're not saying people shouldn't have an opinion, a strong opinion. People shouldn't feel something. We're not saying people shouldn't uh, shouldn't express points of view. It's just when road rage transfers from your car to your everyday life, that's a problem. It, it is a huge problem, and and I think the leaders, um, the public leaders, have to set um, uh, have to set an example. But in the in the uh, in the in the uh, Don Cherry case, I was really disappointed um, by some of the people who uh, came out and asked um, uh, asked Don Cherry to apologize, uh, and and in fact others asked him to be fired. Um, and I, I sat here and I thought to myself, um, if the same kind of anger was expressed um, for the blackface, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau wouldn't be uh, ready to be sworn in again as Prime Minister. He would have been hounded out of um, of the election. And that's I mean, it's a huge problem. It's a, it's a very very difficult problem, intractable it seems, at this moment. I don't have a solution. I'm just worried. I'm just sharing my concerns with you. And I appreciate that, and that's why I called you, because as I sat at home working on these stories this weekend, what I kept coming back to, and we only have a few seconds here, but kept coming back to there's so much anger. There's substance here. There's a reason for people to be engaged. There's a reason for people to have strong feelings. But the insults and the attacks that are flying back and forth will do nothing other than create an even bigger issue and bigger problem. Premier, we need to pick this up another day, and I thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's almost an honor to talk to you. Thank you. It has been a very eventful week, and the whole country has been talking about the Don Cherry Reality, Don Cherry no longer on Coach's Corner, fired for the remarks he made the previous Saturday. And there are very strong opinions on both sides of the issue, as you know. I don't have to tell you that, and it's uh, generated a tremendous amount of emotion right across the country. So I had an opportunity to speak with Don, who's been a friend of mine for many years. I had a chance to talk to him on Friday. Um, My interview was different to what some other people might have done, and that's fair. Whatever you do, do what you want to do. I had the reason for my questions that I asked. So, and 90% of the response has been very favorable to the interview. I thank you for that. I want to play back uh, a little bit of that interview for you now. And then I'm going to play 
Uh, some of what Ron McLean said last night and what used to be Coach's Corner. And then we'll open up the phone lines to you at 800-263-2428. And, and my question really is, uh, is, is this. Um, did you watch last night? Did you watch last night? Um, and I want the studio to listen to this because it's the question that I'm asking. Did you watch last night? Will you miss Coach's Corner? Did you watch last night? Will you miss Coach's Corner? And the phone lines are open to you now at 800-263-2428. If you want to call in, you can do it now. We'll put you on hold. You'll hear everything that's being said on the air, and then hopefully we'll have a, a good chance to get to you in the minutes that we'll set aside for calls. So let me play back for you the first part of the interview with Don Cherry. And the questions I asked here, two questions. The first one was, how are you feeling? You'll hear that. And then there was a second question. Listen. People from coast to coast to coast want to know how you're feeling today, Don. Well, I don't feel too good. When you're not on uh, something you've been on for 38 years, uh, and and all of a sudden you're not on it anymore, uh, I think the reality, the first couple of days it was like, you know, you're at war almost. And uh, no, I don't, feel, I don't feel very good today. What's the impact of the last week been on your family? Well, you know, my wife is, uh, um, and my son and that, and my daughter and that, and I, they're not too happy. But I'll, I'll tell you one thing that uh, I'm, uh, you know who your friends are uh, when uh, when you lose your job. I mean, I, you know, you have Bobby Orr, Wayne Gretzky, and Curtis Joseph, and Kirk Muller, and Ty Dami, and Hazel McCallion. That's uh, Hazel, you know, and you have the uh, service. I got a, a great call from a general, uh, and... Um, the, uh, I, I just don't know what to tell them. I said, what, you stand up, what you stand for. You might pay the price, like I'm paying the price, but uh, stand up for what uh, you want to tell them, stand up what you believe in. So there are the first two questions that I asked Don Cherry in the interview. Moving a little further ahead in the interview, I asked Don uh, two questions about people who support him and people who don't support him. Listen, why do you think so many Canadians have made Don Cherry a must-see part of their week? Why have so many Canadians decided you have to be part of their lives? Well, I think, first of all, they know what I'm talking about. I've been there. I go out and I go to the prospect game. I, I go out and see the young kids. I saw McDavid and Barnier and all those guys before anybody else saw them. It's, first of all, they know what I'm talking about. I think the kids tune in to, to be truthful. I think they see the ties and, and the suits, things like that. I think they start out that way, and I think it's that way, and I, I speak my mind. Uh, and um, evidently these people that, that are in charge now do not like that. And uh, I, that's why I think they tune in. Uh, the, the people know what I'm talking about, and the kids, I think a lot of them tune in uh, to see the ties, to tell you the truth. <laughs> to the people who consider you a racist and are saying good riddance, what? What don't they understand about you? Or does that matter? No, it doesn't matter because they're not going to change their mind. They do not like me. Uh, I, uh, I should have said everybody, not every, not everyone. But, but no, it doesn't matter. They don't like me and uh, they don't like what I stand for. And uh, no matter what I say, what I do, it, it doesn't make any difference. And so I, if they want to think that, that way, that, let them think it that way. That really doesn't bother me. I know I'm not. And the guys like uh, Bobby and Wayne and... Hazel, no, I'm not. 
you know, I'm 86. I'd be 85, as Bobby says. You're 80, going to be 86. But I'm still going to keep it in the race. I'm a little down right now, but I'll, I'll be back in the race. And inevitably, as you can imagine, I had to ask Don Cherry about Ron McLean. What about Ron McLean? Very disappointed. Uh, very disappointed. Uh, even though Sunday was, uh, was was crushing. I mean, uh, when he did the hometown hockey thing. But I, he's still my friend. I understand. And uh, but ver- I'm very disappointed. And Saturday night, you know, he made a, a comeback. But uh, I just uh, I was very disappointed that last Sunday. I, I it was it was very crushing to like. Well, I don't know. That's all I can say, but I'm disappointed in him. So last night, and I imagine millions of people watched, as Ron McLean spoke about Don Cherry, spoke about what used to be on, uh, uh, used to be Coach's Corner, and here we've taken about the last minute of what uh, Ron McLean said. Listen. Don taught me to stand right, so I, I had to have the courage of my convictions, and, and that's what I'll say about you, Don. I, you know, I love you so much, and I, 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 you, you always say you spoke like a 32-year-old American Hockey League player. You were always the captain, the leader of your hockey teams, the coach could count on to take care of the troublemaker, and you taught me to be that guy. And so here I am, sort of standing up uh, and, and taking this position, uh, but that doesn't mean anything uh, in terms of my respect for you or my uh, judgment of you. Uh, we will never do anything uh, in the first intermission on Hockey Night in Canada. We have, like the country, to reimagine ourselves, and there will be, you know, a possibility of this really bad, unexpected thing to do some good things, I hope. Um, But we we honour what you've meant uh, to the game, to the fact that you uh, have been there for human beings and sentient beings. Um, Just a fantastic human being. And so I, I... I love you very much, and uh, and we honor you tonight uh, in this in this last talk about uh, a coach's corner. Ron McLean last night. Now I will tell you, I watched that, listened to it several times. Uh, I don't know Ron very well. He's uh, he's been on on my program in the past. In fact, uh, Ron and Don Cherry were on years ago uh, when Canadian troops were fighting overseas, and we uh, we aired a program about Canadian military. Then the, the three of us, and I will never forget that. But last night, I came away from that um, from that uh, speech by uh, by Ron McLean, and I, I was unmoved. I just thought about Dawn and what's happened. When it comes to the issue of oil and Quebec. Remember the uh, interviews we did with the Montreal Economic Institute? And they pointed out that 66% of Quebecers said they wanted their oil from Western Canada if they didn't have domestic supply, 66%. The next closest was the United States at 14%. And how did Quebecers want the oil transported? Well, 45% of Quebecers said by pipeline. 13% said truck. 11% said tankers. And more than half of Quebec's oil comes, well, you know, from Western Canada. So I'm not sure what Mr. Blanchet is talking about. But my good friend, and I mean that quite sincerely, my good friend Nino Colavecchio, 
who is uh, a member of the Parti Québécois, ran for the PQ in, uh, in, a, in a provincial election, is an avowed sovereignist, is a talk show host, a marketing expert, and a very smart man, will understand uh, what, what, what's good, you know, what is going on? What's Blanchet talking about when he says, he said, if they were Western Canada, if they were attempting to create, create a green state in Western Canada, I might be tempted to help them. If they're trying to create an oil state in Western Canada, they cannot expect any help from us. Quebec's getting half their oil from Alberta as it is. What's going on? That's right. We're a good client. A good customer. Mr. Kenny, Mr. Kenny should tone it down a little bit. <laughs> no. Good afternoon, Ron. I, I, you know, and we are friends. I want people to know that we we are friends. Absolutely. Even Absolutely. though we disagree on a lot of There's things. No one I'd rather argue with than you, Roy. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Let's do it. Uh, well, first of all, you know the, the the thing Canadians should realize is obviously that we're still in election mode here. You know, just because we had one a few weeks ago doesn't mean that it's over. Obviously, everybody knows this will be a short-lived government. So we're continuing to campaign, right? Right. And so, you know, when uh, when uh, the Conservatives uh, start agreeing with Jason Kenney on this matter, we understand where that comes from. Um, Quebecers, essentially, um, and, and I know you keep referring to that study, but um, I, I, frankly... It was I, a poll. It was po- it, a poll done for the, Mor- it was a poll for the Montreal Economic Institute. I believe you. But, you know, we are, we, of course, we are, con- we are also dependent on oil at this point. Uh, perhaps less than the rest of the country, but we do have a dependence on oil around this world, and we need to get get rid of that dependence. Um, Mr. Kenny is making um, statements and allegations, and he wants to he wants a referendum on equalization payments and all the other nice statements that he's making. But the point is um, that yes, we are. We use forty percent of the oil we use in Quebec comes from uh, from Western Canada. And we're paying for it. And, you know, some people have also said we're willing to pay more for it if that's what it's going to take. To but are you paying it for yeah. it? Are you paying for it with equalization dollars that originated in Alberta? <laughs> First of all, because you got 14 billion, you know, that is the biggest that is the biggest myth that is being brought about by everyone in, in, in Western Canada and particularly Mr. Kenny, um, who was a very flamboyant politician and God bless him. So but wait, wait. Let me let me hold on. Let, let me let me ask you this. I have to ask you this: Is Quebec not getting fourteen billion in? in of course. In, okay. Is it coming from Alberta? No, that's not where it's coming from. It's coming from the federal tax. Everybody pays federal taxes in this country, including Albertans. And and, and where does and where does Ottawa get the money from? They may be paying a larger share of it, but that's only because their income level is higher than than in other parts of the country. So. Ottawa gathers up all these funds and divides them and determines which are have province and which are have not provinces. And, and politics has nothing goes. to do with it. Pardon? Politics has nothing to do with it. No, I'm not saying that. I didn't say it was politics. I said there's a, there's a method of calculating those payments. Mm-hmm. But what Albertans, when Jason Kenney says, I give equalization payments to Quebec, he is not exactly truthful. The federal government gives equalization payments to Quebec. That come from it, the taxes that they they they, uh, they uh, collect from the rest of the country, including Alberta. Okay. Okay. So that that is the point. Now, do we get equalization payments? There's a, the system was put in place. There's there's we have we get more less per capita than some other provinces, but because we have a larger population, 
we get we end up in the grand total as receiving that amount of money for equalization payments. So now, what's the objection? So, so Nino, before. what's what's the objection then when Mr. Blanchet? No, no, let me is, let me finish the question. What's oh, the objection when Mr. Blanchet says, "Look, if uh, if you were going to create a green state in Western Canada, I might be uh, interested in, in attempting to help them," and that had to do with Western independence. But if they're trying to create an oil state in Western Canada, they cannot expect any help from us. But Quebec is getting massive amounts of oil. From Alberta, yes, we're buying. And very, it. We're paying and, for it. We're not yeah, and here it. we go. We're going back to where we were before. You're, you're using uh, equalization payments that had many of them had their many of those dollars had their genesis in the province of Alberta. But uh, Roy, we can. You and I have had this discussion before. Let us separate and keep your equalization payments. Then we'll stop paying federal taxes, and and everybody, and we can all go to our own little system. So you know, it's not as separatists. We're not. You know, our goal is not to continue to receive equalization payments from Ottawa. But when governments such as when, when politicians such as Mr. Kenny try and lord this over us, saying we receive equalization payments, so therefore we should never disagree with his plan to run a pipeline across this country right through Quebec so that he can reach eastern Canada. That's not the way it is. Our territory is our territory, so we can decide whether or not we want the pipeline to go through it. And I challenge federal politicians to to, to try and ram down ram that down Quebecers' throats because that will be the rallying call for the separatist movement to get started all over again. Yeah, if we go back to that poll done by Leger of Quebecers, yeah, well, by know, majority I, I, they prefer always, pipelines. I'm very suspicious as a guy who spent his life in marketing and advertising and all those wonderful things, you know. I'm very suspicious of most... Um, of so, most. is it fair to ask then, Nino, oh. would you prefer it by rail, knowing what happened in Quebec? Um, yes, we, we prefer to keep it the way it's being transported right now. As, but we would like to reduce our dependence on oil. So we would like to import less oil, not more. Is there is there a greater sense of... Because I'm looking at... I'm listening to Monsieur Blanchet. I'm listening to Monsieur Legault. And I'm thinking, I'm hearing the, the Parti Québécois. Uh, is there a growing now, again, um, not necessarily desire, but willingness by Quebecers to consider the separation option? No, but what I, as, I, as I've said before on, air, in, on your show, what happens is if people keep not trying to understand where Quebec stands on issues, Okay, so they will lead to this. For example, you know, when the prime minister says he's going to take Bill 21 all the way, fight it in the Supreme Court when it gets there, he will support the challenge. When, when Jason Kenney says, you know, we should ram that indirectly, he hasn't used these exact words, but we should just ram that pipeline through Quebec, whether they like it or not. This is going to fuel that sentiment. What we should be doing is sitting down and understanding what what our values are as, to, as different parts of Canada and try and reach an agreement where we can say, let's work together on this. Right? Do you, you need more money? We don't want a pipeline. Maybe we should be prepared to pay more for our oil then. I always, yeah. enjoy, I always enjoy our conversations <laughs> on and off the air, and I appreciate that you never say no. We are always and should be open to finding better ways to live together. I agree. And and when politicians try and, uh, you know, 
get their popularity up and sound like they're strong leaders by bashing another province. It is not a very positive thing. Nino, we'll talk again. You're a radio guy. You know what happens when the big hand hits a certain number and the yeah, little hand know, hits and, another and number. And your technician's looking at you and making that neck, neck thing. Giving me that, giving me that finger thing, you know, round and round and round and wrap it up, wrap it up, wrap it up. <laughs> Thanks, Take care, Nino. Roy. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, my pleasure. Take care. Nino Kolovec here. He is a good guy, and he does stir it up. And if you're feeling your blood pressure rise, that's exactly, well, I shouldn't say that's what he wanted. He's giving his perspective. Automation uh, is a risk in many sectors of our economy, but not in healthcare. It's going to be uh, a bonus and a plus, and it's going to provide not only better service, but it'll also provide opportunity at work. And some, from what I gather from the study done by uh, RBC, that there are significant numbers of people who are at, in working in at-risk jobs at the moment, but those jobs have already provided them with uh, with fundamentals they might need uh, to get into the healthcare uh, field. Over one million Canadians currently in at-risk occupations have at least three of the top five in-demand healthcare skills, says the uh, the uh, review from RBC. We're joined by John Stackhouse, senior vice president of RBC. Mr. Stackhouse, thanks for the time. Thanks for uh, thanks for inviting me on your show. So we, we look at healthcare. It's the number one issue in this country. It was the number one issue during the during the uh, federal election, there are concerns about wait times, there's concern about efficiencies, there's concern about getting the kind of care that we require, there's a concern about not enough doctors, not enough family doctors in this country, 5 million people without family physicians. That's all on the negative side of the scale, but you're looking at situations and your study shows that things are going to improve and automation is going to be part of that. So uh, the one of the opening lines from your study or your releases in a workplace buffeted by technological change, healthcare has an advantage. Speak to that, please. The advantage in healthcare, uh, which should be evident to anyone who's been through the system, uh, at least in a positive way, is the human skills that uh, that we value so much: uh, empathy, uh, collaboration, communication, uh, as well as the technical skills that uh, we know our, our our health and at times our lives depend on. Uh, we see a terrific opportunity and. In fact, a need for the country to bridge those uh, those capabilities, the human skills and the technology that we're starting to see in healthcare. We have to. It's just becoming too expensive, and it's only going to become more so in the decade ahead as boomers retire. Unfortunately, as we as we age, we all get more expensive. Uh, we need more healthcare. The costs are going to continue to escalate in the years ahead. And we think we've got to have a new, kind of a new way of thinking about healthcare if we're going to manage the costs and improve uh, improve delivery of care. Um, I, I read in your uh, in 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 the study that uh, let me just read the line uh, uh, when we're talking about automation increasing. That's a welcome prognosis, and not only for those working in the sector. Canada's healthcare system faces a people crisis, and you just touched on this because I found out some time ago from the Canadian Medical Association. The doctors uh, are retiring at a faster pace than the general population, and that's not a good situation if you need a doctor. If they're retiring faster than the, than the population, then it means that our net numbers of doctors that are available to services are going to be going down, and uh, the wait lines will become longer, and the issue will become more, more confusing, 
and more challenging. So how does automation then fit into the overall picture? And I guess we're talking artificial intelligence as well. Well, I know we are. Yeah, we're, we're going to need a much wider array of skills in, in healthcare than we've, we've, we've ever seen. Uh, the need for data analysts, for instance, is going to soar. And this should help doctors do their job better. It should help doctors and nurses you know, focus on what they should be focusing on. Uh, but they're going to need not just the technology, the tools in their hands and the screens by the bedside, but the, uh, the, the data analysts, the digital engineers and coders behind the scenes uh, making, uh, making magic with the data that we know is changing pretty much every sector out there. Um, we estimate there's going to be a need for at least 300,000 new people in the sector in the next five years. We don't have those people coming through the school system. We're going to need people to move from other sectors. So we're looking at those other sectors. You know, re- Retail is a, a reasonable example to, uh, to look at where there's disruption well underway. Uh, that's going to continue. How do we help people in, in those sectors, uh, in, in all sorts of levels in those sectors, manage their careers, develop new skills that make them kind of more relevant, let's say, in healthcare, which is going to grow in demand. And uh, just touching on that, over, and I mentioned this at the beginning of the segment, over a million Canadians, your report points out, currently in at-risk occupations, have at least three of the top five in-demand healthcare skills. Can you expand on that a bit? Well, these are these are general skills like empathy and collaboration that are that are essential to uh, to healthcare. It doesn't mean these people can move automatically, kind of on a one-for-one basis, into healthcare skills. And we're not suggesting for a moment that we're going to see, let's say, retail clerks become uh, physicians. Uh, that, that that would be a stretch beyond the imagination. But there's a whole there's a host of jobs and requ- requirements in healthcare that are unfilled right now and mm-hmm. are going to increase in terms of the, the, the needs in the years ahead that people in those sectors can uh, can work towards. There's people with fairly sophisticated digital skills in those sectors that are going to be needed even more so in healthcare. So we've got to look at the school system. We've got to look at immigration to meet healthcare needs over the decade ahead. But we've also got to look at other sectors and think about how we help people manage a transition that's that's going to take uh, a number of years. These aren't moves that you make overnight or over the course of a few months, but we've got to help people in those sectors realize what the opportunities are, number one, and then figure out what sort of additional skills they're going to need, and then thirdly, help them find the training uh, for to develop those skills over a reasonable period of time. You know, I, I just looked at this this finding in uh, in your report, now by 2025, there'll be another 370,000 job openings in healthcare. So I look at that, and you know, I did the thing, sort of the mental calculation. Yeah, that's 2025, and then I thought, Roy, that's only six years from now. So that really is—I uh, mean—that's a major, major opportunity that exists, and the reality exists. 370,000 job openings in healthcare by 2025. I hear people, and we've done programs on this, where young people and their parents and university professors will talk about, you know, what courses should we take? Where should we focus our attention if we want to uh, rehone or hone our skills into an area where we're needed? Wow, the the arrow's pointing at healthcare pretty strongly, isn't it? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and some of those jobs require 
the skills that uh, that we all know are important to healthcare, but a lot of the skills that are emerging in demand in, in, in healthcare are not sort of medically inclined. I keep coming back to this point about digital and data right. because they are growing in importance. If you, you know, if you if you talk to people in the the hospital system, one of their top needs is for top flight you know, digital programmers and data analysts. We're going to see a need for more of that. If you go into a nursing home or a retirement home, uh, there are people doing heroic work uh, who, you, who you see and may get to know, but there's also people who you don't see who are doing equally heroic work uh, in, the, in, in the background through software, and we're going to need more of that as we gain access to more of these machines, uh, the, the robots and, and the like, who will do a lot of the physical work over the decade ahead that we've come to see as uh, as human jobs. Those can be automated, but as we've seen through history, automation tends to lead to more jobs, not less, and they're different different jobs. That's why we're kind of stressing this new need or need for a rethink of how we go about staffing up healthcare because this demand, as you say, it's it's yeah, it's five or six years away, but we've got to have it in this country of kind of thinking we've got time to think about it or to have long conversations about it. And we're trying to to sound a bit of an alarm here and say this is, you know, Canada, this is coming at us really fast. The typical age for someone going into a long-term care situation tends to be around 83, 84, 85 years old. That means people who were born in the 1940s, so the early, early stages of the baby boom, in just a few years are going to be moving in in significant numbers into long-term care homes. And that's going to grow for you know 20 years after that. We're going to need a lot more people in the care industry to deal with, it's called a silver tsunami, to, 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 to deal with that influx of people needing professional, serious care. And we don't have those people right now. So we're saying, hey, there's there's different ways of getting people into the sector, but we got to get on with it. Yeah, there's, there's no, there's really no time to waste, is there? No, no. I mean, it's, uh, it, it's, you know, the 2020s are just a few weeks away. Yeah, exactly. And it's going to be a profound decade. So when people hear the words robot or artificial intelligence or automation, and they're all tied together, there is in many a reflexive fear but you're saying don't be afraid because these developments will actually make things um, not necessarily easier, or maybe uh, it'll make it uh, easier or more agreeable for the frontline physician to do his or her job. Absolutely, and, and we see this. You know, we're, we're we're human. We tend to be a little uh, conservative when it comes to change, and that includes technological change, and then we adapt. Uh, you look at all the technology around us in healthcare that even a you know quarter century ago would have seemed kind of weird, maybe a little little scary, and now we're quite comfortable with it. It's going to be the same with robotics. The first you probably saw in the news, uh, you know, there, there, there was an important bit of robotic surgery that took place yes. in Toronto a couple of weeks ago. Yes, we'll see more of that. There's robots that can do lots of the physical side of. Uh, of healthcare, um, you know, helping people move in their beds, for instance, really is amazing, isn't it? And and we need that, and that, and 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 then we need the humans, the caregivers, to actually be giving care. Yeah, it really is an amazing uh, series of developments working for us. Can you stay with us a little longer? 
Absolutely. Let me take a quick break. We'll come back with John Stackhouse, uh, Senior Vice President of uh, RBC, on their report on the impact of technology on Canada's healthcare sector. It's quite amazing. And one of the subheadings is the robots are coming, uh, just not for most healthcare jobs. Automation and technology is going to improve reality of the healthcare delivery at a time when, you know, the aging population is going to be placing additional uh, stresses on healthcare. And we already know, as we've been saying, and the CMA pointed out to us, five million. Canadians don't have any uh, family physician. There's some key findings from the report. Healthcare added one sixth of all new jobs in Canada since 2010, around 400,000. Uh, again, over a million Canadians currently in at risk occupations have at least three of the top five in demand healthcare skills. The cumulative additional healthcare tab from, on, uh, from aging will be 120 billion over the next decade. What I get here as well, and by 2030, caring for seniors will consume 55% of provincial health care budgets, which is currently at 45%. So, Mr. Stackhouse, one of the things that we really need to focus on here, and you've touched on it, uh, is that you have young people, very skilled technologically, uh, savvy young people who are looking for an environment where they're challenged, where there's opportunity for them to grow, where there's opportunity for them to put down roots and really maximize their skills. We have to deliver that. Are we doing it now? Not not adequately. Um, and, and, and I'd add to your list, these are skills that are portable. You can use anywhere in the country and, and, and frankly, anywhere in the world. So it's a terrific opportunity for young people and I'd throw into the mix as well that it tends, healthcare jobs tend to be recession-proof. So it uh, has that added advantage. But we're not helping young people, especially those who are not kind of keen meds keeners, as we used to call them, or pe- people who are streaming into to medical sciences or nursing. Uh, we're not helping others think about the enormous opportunities for them in the healthcare fields. And that ranges from, 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 from sales to engineering to uh, software to data analysts that uh, are, are being soaked up in big numbers in, uh, in, in the tech field and not adequately enough in the healthcare fields. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a page I'm looking at here, automation risks or risk across major sectors, manufacturing 35%, all industries 34%. Uh, healthcare is only 17%. So again, that points to automation being uh, a real boon to the healthcare sector, what of the what of the of the of the, uh, of the of the research really stands out to you that we may not have touched on, we may not have talked about yet? We tend to think of healthcare as you know being, being ripe for uh, technological improvement, and, and we all know how much government spend on technology in uh, in healthcare. We need that. Most of us as patients appreciate that. But unlike many other sectors, and you, you cited manufacturing, that does not lead to a significant reduction in uh, in employment. So generally, that that could be a, a good thing. Um, but it does lead to a productivity challenge for the sector. So we're going to have a lot more technology and more people in the sector in the in the decade ahead, and that may not lead to the sort of productivity gains that we need. If we're going to see this, we're going to make healthcare sustainable for future future generations. So as we go into a decade of transition, 
and rely more on automated and smart technologies as well as these new skills in healthcare. We really have to force ourselves to think about ways to ensure that these lead to uh, productivity leaps for the sector. Otherwise, we'll just be spending more and more and more. And we all know that that's not. No, we've tried that. Any government. We've tried that. I know we've we, tried we, that for years, spending more and more and more and not getting what we need. That's right. So we need to, that's why we're, we're saying we've got to focus on the productivity side of both the tech spend and the skill spend. So here, here, here's the opportunity on the skill side. When we're adding people to the sector, are we adding the skills that go with the technology that allow individuals in the sector to do a lot more? Yeah. This is really important in long-term care situations where there's a big demand for people. Many of them on the front lines are not very well paid. They do incredible work. How do we ensure that we're going to need more people, but there's going to be more patients per employee in all likelihood? How do we ensure that the employees are delivering more and more value? Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's, it's common sense. It's also, uh, it's reality, it's cost, it's, uh, it's a need. The need is demonstrated. People are getting older. There's nothing you can do about it. They're going to, uh, people are just going to require more care as they grow older. And the boomers, as they grow older, are going to require the assistance. And, you know, there's something, uh, I find it, com- I'm a boomer, by the way, so for, for me, but when I go to a hospital or I go into a, into a clinic and I see some, uh, some really high-tech equipment, I find that reassuring. <laughs> if I see somebody who really knows what they're doing with it, I find that reassuring. I don't find that to be a threat at all. And as you say, and as the uh, report points out, there really is no choice. It has to happen. It has to happen now. We only have six years to 2025, so let's maximize and let's get it done, and then we'll all have... Uh, Healthcare that represents our needs far better. Mr. Stackhouse, good talking to you. Thank you so much for the time. It's a pleasure. Thank you for your interest. Yes, sir. Have a good time. A good day. Good time. Good day. Yeah. The issue of Canadian history and knowing about Canada and um, really, uh, really, it is our Canadian history uh, issue. Is it's been part of the last week's discussion and. I read a, a, a column, an op-ed piece by my friend Michael Zweigstra in the Epoch Times. And uh, in it, Michael writes, newcomers to Canada must pass a citizenship test, which includes questions about Canadian history, and that's in order to qualify for citizenship. Meanwhile, born Canadians in our schools across the country are receiving at best uneven education on Canadian history. This is my words now. Education is a provincial responsibility. Uh, Michael, who is a Manitoba high school teacher and author of A Sage on the Stage and What's Wrong with Our Schools and How We Can Fix Them, makes the case that the federal government has a role to play in increasing the focus on Canada's history in all of the nation's classrooms. It's an important issue for us to get into. Michael Zweigster joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Michael, it is, it is, there is an uneven application uh, as far as uh, uh, teaching Canadian history is concerned, and too many uh, kids in our schools are graduating not knowing enough about this country's past. Uh, that is very true. There are uh, a number of provinces that, uh, for example, don't have uh, mandatory Canadian history classes at the high school level. Uh, even then at the younger grade levels, it's, uh, it's, it's sporadic. Some provinces... Have a have a reasonable amount in the in the lower grade levels, and others uh, considerably less so. And so the end result is that it's uh, not everyone learns enough about Canadian history, and this is a problem. I think that uh, 
that everyone who graduates from school in Canada should have a solid understanding of, of our history, both the, both the positive things and the negative things. The, remember the Dominion Institute? Um, and they would annually conduct these surveys and ask questions. Um, and they found out, I'm going back to 2009 now, four in ten Canadians couldn't name our first prime minister or identify the year of confederation. Forty percent of Canadians didn't know the year of confederation or Sir John A. Macdonald's name. Yeah, I've seen I've seen many of those same uh, reports in the Dominion Institute, and uh, it, it is it is a problem. And because if you don't if you don't know your history of your country, it's very hard to analyze the current challenges that we face. I mean, we see some major uh, issues with Canadian uh, unity right now, and uh, some major divides across the country. Yes, and it sure is helpful if you know uh, some of the circumstances that led to Confederation in the first place. Uh, in, it, it certainly helps to know, for example, the history of uh, Western alienation and grievances. It didn't start uh, now, uh, and it uh, frankly didn't even start in the 1970s and 80s with Pierre Trudeau. You can go all the way back to, uh, uh, to not long after Louis Riel uh, and, 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 the re- and, and his resistance and the later rebellion there, and you, uh, you, the creation of uh, Manitoba and then later Saskatchewan, Alberta, and for the longest time those three provinces didn't have control over their natural resources up until 1930. There's a lot of things about our history that it's important to know if we're going to understand why we're facing some of the challenges we do now. Yeah, and you know, as the debate was going on and the questions were being asked and the uh, the temperature was rising on the issue of wearing poppies over the last week uh, and uh, and Don Cherry losing his job, I started to wonder, I was just sitting at home one evening watching something on television, and I, uh, I just suddenly thought, I wonder how many people, young people particularly, even know what the poppy's about. I wonder if they've been told what the history of the poppy is and what it signifies. I don't know the answer to that question, but I think it's a relevant one to ask. Well, it's a very relevant question. And again, there are many schools that do a very good job with Remembrance Day ceremonies yes, they do. and a focus on that. Um, but uh, not all. in terms of how consistent that is across the board, that I would uh, that I would certainly question, and uh, because it's it's useful to know about uh, you know the the you know, armistice, you know the eleventh hour of the eleventh day, you know in nineteen eighteen, uh, these are important things to know, and about John McRae and you know where you know in Flanders Fields, uh, you know a bit of his history, where did that poem come from, and right. what was his background. Uh, the richer the understanding you have of our some of our most important symbols, um, the uh, the more significance these things have in your in your everyday life. So, Michael, in your piece uh, in the Epoch Times, your op-ed piece, you make the case that even though the federal government doesn't control education, that's a provincial issue. You make the case that the federal government has or could have a role to play if they chose to do so. Yeah, I I do, and I'm I'm careful on this because I realize that uh, you know I'm. I'm you know, personally, I'm a strong supporter of provincial rights. I don't want the federal government taking over stuff that's not their area of responsibility. But in, on something like promoting standards on Canadian history, I think this is something that uh, uh, that the federal government can play a role in. And the federal government does it now with new citizens. You know, if you want to become a citizen of Canada and you're a permanent resident, you want to be a citizen, you have to write a citizenship test. And in order to pass that test, you need to study a 64-page guide called Discover Canada that's published by the federal government. And that's a great booklet that has a lot of solid Canadian history in it. And if it's possible for the federal government to come up with, with uh, that study book for new citizens, how hard would it be for the federal government to come up with some, 
some broader history standards to recommend to provinces to encourage as a template that this is these are some of the things that we think that all citizens should know, not just those who have to write yeah. the citizenship. Great plan. idea. Great, wonderful idea. And then maybe as you write, test the students as they're leaving leaving high school. Michael, thank you very much for the time of the discussion. Michael Zweigster, public high school teacher and author of the book, A Sage on the Stage, Common Sense Reflections on Teaching and Learning. Always good talking to you, Michael. Thank you. Always a pleasure, Roy. Thank you. All the best to you. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 